Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 13. As I mentioned in the prayer there, we are beginning a new sermon series this morning, going through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, as is my habit, I'm sure we will have interruptions throughout, but uh, Matthew's a long gospel. It will take us quite a while to get through the whole thing, but we won't try to rush it. We'll just enjoy God's word and what it has to teach us about our Savior. This morning we're going to finish Matthew chapter 2, looking at verses 13 through 23. If you'll remember back to uh, Christmas time, we went through Matthew chapter 1 in Advent, and then uh, we also preached Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And so we're going to pick up where we left off there at verse 13 uh, and finish what you might call the uh, sort of childhood narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The rest of chapter 2 will detail the rest of his childhood, and then as all the Gospels have, uh, it'll jump straight ahead to his adult ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist going before him. But this morning we'll finish the childhood narrative and we'll learn something uh, very important about Matthew's Gospel presentation and how Matthew's going to share Jesus with us, and we'll see how Jesus as our Redeemer uh, works and does his ministry in Matthew's Gospel. Let's give our attention now, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And the God now bless us as we consider his word this morning. This morning we do begin the Gospel of Matthew. And as we go into a sermon series on one of the Gospels, it's important to notice something right away and to get something out of the way from the forefront. Uh, we have in our Bibles four different Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and perhaps you've asked yourself, well, why, why do we need four, right? Wouldn't one have been sufficient? 
Uh, why couldn't we just have the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do we need the gospel of Jesus Christ according to these four different men? Well, um, I don't live in a huge bubble. I do live in somewhat of a bubble, but I do at least realize that today is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, so I'd like to ask a, a question on the contrary there as it relates to football. Uh, if you were trying to watch a play and determine if the football crossed the plane of the goal line, right? Touchdown or no touchdown. Do you want just one camera angle or do you want multiple camera angles? Of course you want multiple, right? Because one angle might show it and it might look inconclusive. One angle might show it and it looks like, oh no, he didn't cross the plane. The ball didn't get over the line there. But another camera angle might be much clearer and show that no, clearly the ball crossed the plane. It's a touchdown. You want multiple different angles. And you wouldn't look at those multiple different angles and say, oh, they're contradicting each other. It's one of the mistakes people make when they come to the Gospels. The Gospels tell the same story from four different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in particular, tell many of the same stories about Jesus. But if you read them, sometimes they're slightly different. It causes people trouble. They go, well, is that a contradiction? Is that the Gospels contradicting each other and the Bible therefore is fallible and I don't need to listen to it? Well, no, in the same way that one camera angle in a football game might show it one way, but another shows something different. You get a different perspective. They don't contradict each other, but rather they complement each other. Each of the four Gospels has its own flavor, you might say, its own distinct focus of what the Gospel writer wants you to understand about Jesus. Matthew is no different. And what we have in these verses before us this morning, I believe, set a good foundation for what are Matthew's distinct emphases. What does Matthew in particular want me to know about Jesus Christ? Mark and Luke and John, they have different emphases. They have different things they want you to understand about Jesus. It's all the same person, but different angles of him. But Matthew in particular has his own focuses. One of these would be that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long foretold Jewish redeemer. Matthew of all the gospels is perhaps the most Jewish. It's the most Jewish flavored, you might say. He quotes a lot from the Old Testament. He wants you to understand that Jesus is not showing up new on the scene. He's coming in place in a longer story that's been going on for a long time. And he wants you to understand that Jesus is coming into this story not to start a new story, but to fulfill an old story. A couple of the big things that Matthew wants us to know about Jesus, I think the biggest one is that. He wants you to understand that Jesus is coming to fulfill the Old Testament. He's coming to fulfill God's promises. Those promises God had made to the Jews sometimes thousands of years beforehand and that the Jews have been waiting on for a long, long time. Now, Matthew says, they are being answered. They're being fulfilled in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. He shows us in this section that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and he also shows you how he's going to do it. Now, I want to point out to you in this text that when Matthew says Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, he's talking about the whole thing. 
not just what some people would call the messianic parts. If you've ever done Bible studies in the Old Testament, maybe you've heard that word, right? You'll go to the Psalms and then say, oh, this is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm talking about the Messiah, as opposed to another psalm that isn't talking about the Messiah. You'd say, oh, this is a messianic prophecy. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, something like that. These are messianic prophecies about the Christ, as opposed to the other prophecies that have nothing to do with the Messiah. But according to Matthew, that's actually not the right way to think about it. According to Matthew, there are no, quote-unquote, messianic parts. The whole thing is messianic. The whole thing is about Christ. And we see this by the three references that Matthew gives in this text. He gave three different quotes that Jesus is fulfilling here in Matthew chapter 2. He does it in verse 15. He does it in verse 17 and 18. And he does it in verse 23. In those three different verses, he gives three different quotations. And he says that Jesus is doing these things in fulfillment of these prophecies. But what's interesting to note about them is actually none of the quotes we would consider prophecies. None of them. None of them are actually prophetic in that way. They're certainly not messianic. Look, for example, at verse 15. Matthew says that Joseph takes Mary and Jesus and they go to Egypt to escape from Herod, who's going to kill these young children, as we read about in verses 16 to 18. And Matthew explicitly says he did this to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord, uh, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you have a good Bible with cross-references, you can see there there's a note. And look down at the bottom of your page, that note, Hosea 11, verse 1. You say, okay, Hosea is a prophet. This must be a messianic prophecy about how the Messiah would go to Egypt and then be called out of it. It's actually not. If you go to Hosea 11, verse 1, God is simply rehashing with Israel what he did for them in the Exodus. He's not pointing ahead to something he would do. He's reminding Israel of what he had already done for them. And yet Matthew reads that verse and he looks at it and he says, no, no, this is ultimately about Jesus. This is not just pointing back to what God would do or what God did for us in the Exodus. This is pointing ahead to what God would do through his son. Hosea 11 verse 1 is not a prophecy per se, and it's certainly not a messianic prophecy, but Matthew interprets it that way. And he applies it to the life of Jesus. The next one in verse 18 Again, if you have a good cross-reference Bible, you see the quote there, Jeremiah 31, verse 15. But again, an issue, you go back to Jeremiah 31, verse 15, it also is not a prophecy. It's simply Jeremiah talking about what's going to happen in the exile. It's not about a, Messi a Messiah who's coming. He's just talking about the experience the Jews are going to have when the Babylonians come and take them into exile. But again, Matthew, reading that verse, applies it to the life of Jesus. He says that Jesus and his life, and in particular, the way that Herod would persecute and try to kill Jesus, and even kill young boys, two years old and under, is fulfilling something that was not meant to have a fulfillment. Jeremiah 31, 15, is being fulfilled in this reality. And as if that wasn't enough, if you look at verse 23, this is the first one where you might be a little bit surprised. You go to that quote that Matthew gives. Which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. 
And you're looking for your cross-reference, right? And where's the little A? Where's the little letter that tells me the Bible reference for that verse? You don't have one because there is no verse that says that. There is no Old Testament verse that says he shall be called a Nazarene. It's not there. The reason that your, your Bible translation doesn't have it is because it's not there. It doesn't exist. What Matthew is doing with that statement is he's summarizing the whole overview of who the Messiah would be. He's summarizing all the teachings of the prophets, all the messianic expectations that the Jews had about who the Christ would be. And he's giving it as if it was an Old Testament reference, summarizing the whole teaching of the Old Testament and telling you Jesus is fulfilling that. He is fulfilling the entirety of the scriptures. The point that Matthew is giving us here that's important for you to know as a student of God's word is that according to Matthew, the whole story is about Jesus. The whole Old Testament is about Christ. There's not a single part of it that's not messianic. I understand maybe you have good commentaries, maybe you do a Bible study where it talks about the messianic Psalms. Certainly there are portions in the Old Testament that are more clearly applied to the Messiah. But the reality is the whole thing is about him. The whole thing is about Christ. Matthew is teaching us what Luke teaches us. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Bible says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things that were concerning the Christ. Jesus himself teaches us that the whole story is about him. The whole thing is about Christ. There's no part of the Bible that is not about Jesus. If you follow us on social media, uh, you know that I have at least been attempting to do a video series uh, of Thursdays through the Bible. And Lord willing, every Thursday, going through the next book in the scriptures. I missed this week with all the hubbub with my girls, so apologies for that if you were waiting with bated breath uh, to get that video. I'll have to do some catch-up this week. Now that my girls are out of town, maybe I'll have plenty of time to do it. Uh, but um, the week prior, we even looked at the book of Leviticus, the book that if you've ever tried to read the Bible through in a year, you know that's the book where you fall off, right? Exodus, you can kind of work your way through. There's a lot of good stories. But then you get to Leviticus, and it's just eight chapters on how to sacrifice different animals and exactly how to do it right and how to purify yourself after some impurity comes on you. And you go, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has to do with you because it has to do with Jesus. It's all about him, right? We even saw as we studied the book of Leviticus, what is the book of Leviticus teaching me? It's teaching me that in my sin, I am unclean before God and that I have no hope in myself to make myself clean. I need a priest. I need a sacrifice to come from the outside and make me clean. We saw how even in the book of Leviticus, those Old Testament priests couldn't do that for you. They couldn't give you a perfect cleansing from sin that would last forever. So I need a priest who can. I need a sacrifice that can. I need blood that can cover my sins permanently. And that's what Jesus did for us. The whole thing's about him. From start to finish, the entire Bible is a story about Jesus Christ. When you read the Bible, including every part of the Old Testament, your first thought should not be, uh, how does this apply to my life or how is this about me? 
first you need to ask the question, what is this teaching me about Jesus? What is this teaching me about the Christ? The whole thing is about him from start to finish. He fulfills all of God's word, not just the messianic parts. So Matthew shows us in this setup what Jesus is going to do. He's coming to fulfill the Old Testament. But he also shows us how he's going to do it. How is Jesus going to fulfill God's promises in the Old Testament? He's going to do it by recapitulating. If you want a good $5 word to share around uh, your table of friends this week and make everyone impressed with you. Recapitulation. Right? It's not that uncommon of a word, but what does it mean? To recapitulate means I am sort of concisely repeating something. I'm, I'm retelling or redoing something in smaller version, right? Jesus is going to fulfill the Old Testament by recapitulating the history of God's people. He's going to repeat in a small picture the entirety of the history of Israel. From the beginning, what happened with Abraham? God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldees, and he went into the promised land of Canaan. But he didn't inherit it right away, did he? Abraham wandered as a sojourner in a land that he had been promised. Well, what do we know about Jesus? What do we even know about his birth? Does his family own the house that he's born in? No. Right? It's at best rented, if not just freely given to them for the purpose of his birth. And even then, when he grows up, what do we know about Jesus? He says of himself, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's a sojourner. He doesn't have a dwelling place of his own, even among his own people in the promised land of God. Like Abraham, Jesus sojourns in the promised land. Israel went down to Egypt and was brought back by God out of Egypt. And in our text today, verses 13 through 15, Matthew says also, Jesus goes down to Egypt to escape suffering. And then he also is brought back by God. And he even gives us that Hosea reference that originally pointed back to the Exodus. And now Matthew says it's pointing forward to the Exodus of Christ. Jesus goes into Egypt and then comes back up. You remember the story of Moses, how Pharaoh tried to have all the Hebrew boys killed when they were born. To wipe out the promised line. Well, we read that Jesus also narrowly escapes death at the hands of an unjust ruler. Not quite to the same scale. Probably uh, there were only anywhere from 20 to 30 uh, young boys, given the population of Bethlehem at this time, that were killed in uh, chapter 2 there. But again, on a small scale, it's telling you the same story. Moses narrowly escapes death as an infant. Jesus narrowly escapes death as an infant. And even the tragedies of the exile, Jeremiah 31, 15, even the tragedies of what the Jews experienced at the hands of the Babylonians is fulfilled in the exile of Christ from his own land. This is going to be a pattern throughout Matthew's gospel. This is one of the things that Matthew is explicitly going to do, um, even more so than the other gospel writers. The other gospel writers do this, but Matthew is really wanting to emphasize it for you. Jesus is... Israel. He is the new Israel. He's going to do what Israel had done and what Israel had always been supposed to do. 
If you read the history of Israel, you know it's a history of kind of failure after failure, right? God calls them, he gives them blessings and power, and he says, here's how I want you to live as my priestly nation, here's what I want you to do for the world, and they fail, right? They turn to other gods, they become like the nations around them, they become immoral and unjust. Jesus is going to come as a new and better Israel and essentially redo the story and get everything right that the first Israel got wrong. We talked about this in his genealogy. For Matthew, Jesus is the ultimate Jew. He's a son of Abraham. He's a son of David. He, he has this sort of perfect lineage going all the way back to the father of the Jews. And he's going to come and do what the Jews were always meant to do, but always failed to do. And by doing that, he's going to earn all the blessings and favors of God that Israel missed out on. All of the good things that Israel was meant to have from God, but they missed out on because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, Jesus is going to get for himself and then share with his people through his perfect faithful obedience to God. We'll see this in a number of places. In his baptism, he's going to go and be baptized by John the Baptist. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. But even then, John is put off by that, right? right? Because what's John's baptism for? It's for sinners. It's a, it's a baptism of repentance from sin. And here comes the perfect Jesus, and John is going to be kind of offended by this. He's going to say, no, no, Jesus, you're supposed to baptize me, right? I'm the sinner. You're the perfect sinless Savior. You should baptize me. And what's Jesus going to say? Let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he's going to tell John, I understand that, John. I understand who I am and who you are, but I need to be baptized by you. Not because he has sins of his own to be cleansed from, but to cleanse us from our sins. He's going to be baptized so that you and I might be baptized into him. He's going to confess sin that he doesn't have so that he might take our sins from us on himself. Some people have asked uh, in the men's group recently, we studied Psalm 51, uh, David's psalm of repentance after he uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband Uriah. And there, there's scholars that will ask, okay, well, if it's all about Jesus, how does Jesus pray Psalm 51, right? How can Psalm 51 about a sinner repenting to God be fulfilled in Jesus? And the easy answer is he's doing it for me. He's doing it for me. He's not confessing his own sin. He's confessing my sin. He's not repenting from his own sins. He's repenting from my sins because he's going to take my sins on his shoulder and deal with them in my place. If you want to get a picture for how Matthew's going to present Jesus in his gospel, um, Jesus is kind of like an Olympic athlete. Olivia showed me a video uh, just a few days ago before she left for Wisconsin, and it was a video of, of um, right, uh, people trying to compete with Usain Bolt in a running contest, right? A bunch of just average Joes like you and me trying to compete with the fastest man in the world and just to show off how fast he really is. Because you watch him with all those other Olympic-level athletes, and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, he's fast. But you don't really understand how fast until you put him up against Joe Schmo, uh, uh, you know, Joe the electrician, 
who's trying to run with the fastest man in the world, and you realize, oh my goodness, like this man is absurdly fast. Why do we put those Olympic athletes out on the field? To compete for us. To compete in our place. When, when an athlete goes out representing the United States, he might have his name on that little badge, but his uniform, his, his jersey says USA. Because he's not competing for himself. He's competing for his people. So if he earns the gold, we earn the gold. If he comes in last place, we come in last place. That's what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Matthew. He's coming as a representative. He's coming as a replacement, someone to represent you on the field of play and to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Because if, if you got thrown out there trying to compete on your own, it'd be like Joe Schmo trying to run with Usain Bolt. You're not going to win. You need someone to represent you. Maybe I need Usain Bolt to run for me. Matthew is going to show us how Jesus acts as our representative. He's going to do for us what we should have done for ourselves. You think about this. What does God ultimately expect of us? What does God want from me, right? Maybe you've wrestled with that question. I know I have in the past and even sometimes today. What does God want from me right now? What does God expect? Well, the Bible teaches us clearly what God expects for all people. Matthew 5, verse 48, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So God wants perfect righteousness. What's the problem then? Well, we don't have that, do we? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You don't have perfect righteousness. The thing that God rightly requires from you, you don't possess and you can't give him. But instead, we have sinned against God and we brought his wrath on ourselves. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we are children of wrath. So we have a problem. What's the solution? Well, the solution is not coming from me. The solution is I need someone to do it for me. I need someone to solve this problem for me. And that's the very essence of the gospel. The thing that God rightly commands me to do, Christ does on my behalf. And the punishments, the wrath that I deserve from God for my sins and my disobedience, Christ pays for in my place. It's the very essence of the gospel right here in Matthew 2. I need Jesus Christ to do for me what I cannot and will not do for myself. I need him to live a life of perfect righteousness so that I can give God a perfect righteous account. And I need him to take my sins on his shoulders and pay for them in my place so that I can be freed from the wrath of God. I need him to be my righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, does prophesy about this messianic figure. This is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Not the Lord who demands my righteousness, the Lord who is my righteousness. I need Jesus to be righteous for me. I need Jesus to pay the penalty for my sins for me. And that's what he does. That's what Matthew wants to tell you. This is what Jesus comes to do. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes my sins from me and bears them in my place, and he gives me his perfect righteousness and represents me before God. 
This is one reason why Jesus will say in Matthew 18, verse 3, that unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You think about how childish this makes you sound? What are, what are kids defined by universally? An incapacity to do much for themselves, right? My, my daughter these days, Nora, everything. Daddy, I want a snack. Daddy, can you help me put my shoes on? Daddy, I need help. Daddy, can you help me with this? Daddy, can you, can you carry my bike for me? She'll ride her bike for about a block and then she wants to just walk and I have to carry it. She doesn't want to take it back to the house. She just wants me to carry it, but I have to do it for her. What are kids like? They're needy. They're so needy. All they do is ask you to do things for them. And then over time, we train them to do things for themselves and they start learning. Over time, they become better. The reality is that at least in the Christian life, you never outgrow your need for Christ. You never outgrow your neediness. You have to become like little children. You have to realize that I can't do this for myself. What God requires of me, I cannot provide him. And the wrath of God that I deserve for my sins, I cannot atone for. I need someone else to do it for me. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for you. He delivers you by his perfect life, by his perfect sacrificial death, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus does it for you. That's the gospel. That's not just the gospel of Matthew. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he does for us as our representative, as our deliverer, and our redeemer. As we go through the gospel of Matthew, I want you to keep that at the forefront of your minds. Jesus does it for me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. We bless you for this good word. Oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a perfect representative. Thank you, Lord, for a Savior who is so good. Jesus, you don't just stand in heaven asking us to try harder. You don't just say, be a better person. You didn't come to give us good advice. Lord, we confess that often... We come to you and we just want good advice. But gospel doesn't mean good advice. It means good news. It's good news about what someone else has done for us. It's good news about our own inability and Christ's overwhelming ability to be our Savior. Well, Lord, I pray that we would receive that good news, that we would hear it and respond with joy and obedience. Lord, help us to treasure that truth Christ does it for me. Christ does it in my place. And help us to follow him accordingly. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.